0: So tonight, we're going to be talking about Abigail, and she's one of my favorite women in the Old Testament. Um, And so as I was studying her, the Lord just kept on, like, putting on my heart, you're supposed to teach on speech and our tongue. And I was like, Jesus, I'm not the right person to talk on that. (laughs) And... And I was like digging into Abigail and like, what else, what else can I teach on? And it was like, nope, that's, uh, that's what I have to teach on. So, <clears throat> so as I've been going through this, um, there's been lots of conviction and, um, but I base I just, I wanted to share that in the beginning because I'm definitely not, um, even close to being perfect when it comes to, Speech and being uplifting, and everything that I'm gonna be talking about tonight, but um, but it is something that the Lord has taken me a long way in, and I still have a lot more to go but um but so I'm learning and we're learning, and we're just gonna dig into scripture, and I am so incredibly thankful for the grace of Jesus. And um, that this is all about him and his word and not me. Because otherwise it would be really bad. So I'm going to open up in prayer. And um, <clears throat> the first passage that we're going to be looking at is First Samuel 25. So Jesus, I thank you so, so much um, just for who you are. And I thank you for reminding us during worship about everything that you've done in our lives and other people's lives. Jesus, I thank you that all of history revolves around you, and all of your scripture revolves around you, and everything in the Old Testament revolves around you, and everything in our lives should revolve around you. And Jesus, I do so ask that, um, that my words would not be able to come out tonight, but that it would only be your words and I ask, Jesus, that everything that you have been convicting me and showing me that, um, that you would reveal that truth to every single one of us, and that wherever or whatever each of us needs to take deep into our spirits, that you would teach us that, and that you would divide your word into 30 different ways with exactly what we need from you, Jesus, tonight. And I thank you that your word does not return void, but it achieves the purpose for which you sent it and accomplishes what you desire. And I pray that tonight, Jesus, that your word would achieve its purpose and it would accomplish what you desire, and that that would be more of Jesus and less of us. And Jesus, I just ask that you would have your way tonight, that you would have your way in our hearts, and that you would quiet our spirits before you so that we can be fully attentive to whatever you want to speak to us. In the name of Jesus, amen. Okay, so is everyone at 1 Samuel 25? And there, if anyone doesn't have a sheet, there's some extra sheets up here. So, Abigail is one of David's wives. And just to give a little background, David has already killed Goliath. He's already become one of the top people in Saul's army. Saul has already become jealous, and Saul has already tried to kill him. So there's all that. David and Jonathan had their covenant as brothers. And then in chapter um, 24, Saul almost takes David's life, and David spares his life. And it's just a couple chapters later that the same thing happens again that David could take Saul's life, and instead he spares him. Um, and so this chapter is stuck right in the middle of two chapters about David sparing Saul's life. So that's kind of interesting to think of as we go through this story of Abigail, and I think why the Lord orchestrated this and why she was in the middle of both of those. <clears throat> so chapter 25 starts with... Then Samuel died. And all Israel gathered together and mourned for him and buried him at his house in Ramah. And David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. So Samuel is the person that anointed David. And, you know, he's the one that, like, confirmed David's calling. And he was this great prophet and man of God. And now he's dead. So after David went and mourned him. He goes down to the wilderness of Paran, which is south of the Sea of Galilee, or south of the um, Dead Sea. So now there was a man, my version says, Maon, Maon, whatever, um, whose business was in Carmel. And this is not Mount Carmel, where Elijah had his duel. So that's like up north. This is down in the south. And the man was very rich. And he had 3,000 sheep and a 1,000 goats. And it came about while he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the man's name was Nabal, which means fool. And his wife's name was Abigail. And the woman was intelligent and beautiful in appearance. But the man was harsh and evil in his dealings. And he was a Calebite. And so that's like kind of stuck in the middle. So I'm just going to read the sentence around it. And it came about while he was shearing his sheep in Carmel, that David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent 10 young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, visit Nabal, and greet him in my name. And thus you shall say, Have a long life. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. Now I have heard that you have shearers. Now Now your shepherds have been with us, and we have not insulted them nor have they missed anything all the days that they are in Carmel. Ask your young men and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we have come on a festive day. Please give whatever you find at hand to your servants and to your son David. So it's a very humble message that he's giving him. Your son David, your servant. When David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal according to all these words in David's name. Then they waited. So they didn't add to it, they just spoke it and waited. But Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who is David? And who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants today who are each breaking away from his master. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have slaughtered from my shearers and give it to men whose origin? I do not know. So David's young men retraced their way and went back. And they came and told him according to all these words. David said to his men, each of you gird on his sword or put on your sword. So each man put on his sword and David also put on his sword. And about 400 men went up behind David while 200 stayed with the baggage. Would you guys mind not bending the paper anymore? Thank you. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, Behold, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, and he scorned them. Yet the men were were very good to us, and we were not insulted, nor did we miss anything, as long as we went about with them while we were in the fields. They were a wall to us, both by night and by day. All the time we were with them tending the sheep. Now, therefore, know and consider what you should do, for evil is plotted against our master and against all his household, and he is such a worthless man that no one can speak to him. The literal Hebrew there means son of Belial, which is interesting. And in the New Testament, Belial is the formal name of Satan. So, worthless is a kind phrase. Then Abigail hurried and took 200 loaves of bread and two jugs of wine and five sheep already prepared and five measures of roasted grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and loaded them on donkeys. She said to her young men, go on before me. Behold, I am coming after you. But she did not tell her husband, Nabal. It came about as she was riding on her donkey and coming down by the hidden part of the mountain that behold, David and his men were coming down toward her. So she met them. Now David had said, surely in vain I have guarded all these men, all that this man has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him. And he has returned me evil for good. May God do so to the enemies of David, and more also, if by morning I leave as much as one male of any who belonged to him. So he was going to kill them all, all the men. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and dismounted from her donkey, and fell on her face before David and bowed herself to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my lord, be the blame. And please let your maidservant speak to you and listen to the words of your maidservant. Please do not let my lord pay attention to this worthless son of Belial man, Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Fool is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your maidservant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now therefore, my Lord, as the Lord, as Yahweh lives, and as your soul lives, since Yahweh has restrained you from shedding blood and from avenging yourself by your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek evil against my Lord be as Nabal. Now let this gift, which your maidservant has brought to my Lord, be given to the young men who accompany my Lord. Please forgive the transgression of your maid servant. For Yahweh will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of Yahweh, and evil will not be found in, in you all your days. Should anyone rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, then the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the bundle of the living with Yahweh your God. But the lives of your enemies he will sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when Yahweh does for my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and appoints you ruler over Israel, this will not cause grief or a troubled heart to my Lord, both by having shed blood without cause and by my Lord having avenged himself. When Yahweh deals well with my Lord, then remember your servant. Then David said to Abigail, Blessed be Yahweh, God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. And blessed be your discernment. And blessed be you, who have kept me this day from bloodshed and from avenging myself by my own hand. Nevertheless, as Yahweh, God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from harming you, unless you had come quickly to meet me, surely there would not have been left to Nabal until the morning light, as much as one male. So David received from her hand what she had brought him, and said to her, Go up to your house in peace. See, I have listened to you and granted your request. Then Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she did not tell him anything at all until the morning light. But in the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, His wife told him these things and his heart died within him so that he became a stone. Maybe catatonic, something like that. Because it wasn't until about 10 days later, Yahweh struck Nabal and he died. So the end of the story. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be Yahweh who has pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from evil. Yahweh has also returned the evil doing of Nabal on his own head. Then David sent a proposal to Abigail to take her as his wife. When the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they spoke to her saying, David has sent us to you to take you as his wife. She arose and bowed with her face to the ground and said, Behold, your maid servant is a maid to wash the feet of my Lord's servants. Then Abigail quickly arose, rode on a donkey with her five maidens who attended her. And she followed the messengers of David and became his wife. David had also taken Ahinoam of Jezreel, and they both became his wives. That is not God's plan for men to have more than one wife. Now Saul had given Michael, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was from Gallim. So, it's a long chapter. But... um. One thing that's interesting to note is a couple chapters later, David is in Ziklag. And um, when he's out fighting, the Amalekites come and take all of their wives, all of their possessions, everything and leave. And Abigail and Ahinoam are the two wives of David that were taken. And so I just, I thought it was interesting as I was studying Abigail to realize that all those women and the children had a woman like Abigail with them while they were taken and like what like part of the hand of the lord to allow that this woman who is so full of intelligence and discernment and focusing on the lord would be with those travelers because the bible focuses on david and his men and how they went and you know took all the wives back but i mean that would be really scary you know while you're being taken and um, I just think it's it's really cool how God gave Abigail to David, but he also gave Abigail to those other wives and children to help shepherd them <clears throat> as they were going. Okay, <clears throat> so I want to kind of dissect um, her speech a little. But before we do that, we're going to go through some of these scriptures. So if you have your sheet, the first one. That I want to discuss is Proverbs fourteen one, um, and this is a verse that my mom made us memorize when we were kids. You know, she always had on the wall. She always had in all of her Bible studies. But the wise woman builds her house, but the foolish tears it down with her own hands. And this verse doesn't necessarily say anything about our tongue or our speech, but <clears throat> I think it in the Bible it is very clear that our words either tear down or build up. And one of the biggest ways that the wise woman builds her house is with her tongue and is with her words. And one of the biggest ways that the foolish one tears it down is with her words and with her speech. And in Proverbs 31, when it's talking about the Proverbs 31 woman, it says she opens her mouth in wisdom and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. And so that's the like, you know, Proverbs 31, the pinnacle godly woman, that's how she's defined, that she opens her mouth in wisdom and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. <clears throat> and then in Proverbs 12, 18 and 25, there is one who speaks rashly like Nabal, like the thrusts of a sword, but the tongue of the wise, like Abigail, brings healing. Anxiety in a man's heart weighs it down, like in David's heart, but a good word makes it glad. And so as we're studying Abigail and thinking, you know, how, like what does the Lord want us to, to grab out of her life and her words and how can we be women like Abigail? Um, Colossians 4, 6 came to mind. Let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you will know how you should respond to each person. And then if you turn the page, the top verse there is Ephesians 4.29. And I have this verse memorized in the NIV, which says, let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is, now of course I can't. No unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only, no, it's coping something. Up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And so the NIV translate the Greek there that it may benefit those who listen. But a more literal translation is what's here, and that's give grace to those who hear. So it's giving caris. And grace, my dad has talked about this in so many sermons, the definition of grace is everything that God has that we do not, but so desperately need. And so grace isn't just mercy. It's not just forgiveness. It's not just giving us what we don't deserve. Grace is literally the Lord's strength and his power in us to live the life that he has called us to. And so when we give grace, we are giving strength. And if our words are always supposed to be full of grace, then our words should be full of strength. And that grace only comes from Jesus. Jesus and so our speech should always be pointing people to jesus our speech should always be bringing life our speech should always be bringing healing and if our words aren't full of grace then they shouldn't be spoken and that's one of the things that the lord has been reminding me of a lot um and i think as we're as we're talking about speech and as we're as I was thinking through my speech and not just necessarily what I say to a person, but what I say to someone else about another person. um, Is that giving grace? Is that giving strength? Is that giving the Lord's spirit in every word that I say? Um, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for the edification according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. Um, and and one thing that I was thinking about um. with this is we obviously cannot give grace to other people unless we have grace. We can't give Jesus to other people unless we have Jesus. And so as we're wanting to speak grace and have good speech to other people, the focus has to be Jesus. The focus has to be, I need more of Jesus. And, um, and one thing to, to really meditate on, and this is something that the Lord has taught me a lot over the last few years, is in Matthew it says that you know a tree by its fruit. And you make a tree good, and then its fruit is good. So if you use harsh words, if you speak negatively, if you gossip, if you're critical, if you yell, if you slander, if um, whatever words come out of your mouth that aren't full of grace, it's not that you need to change your words. It's that you need to change the tree. And so that is when, you know, it's not that you need to beat yourself over the head And say, oh, I should have done better. And then you just grunt and try really hard to not let any angry words come out. Because I've tried that and it doesn't work. But it has to just be, Jesus, I humble myself before you. And I should not expect Juliana to say any good words. But Jesus, I need you to fill Juliana so that only Jesus speaks through me. Because that's what's going to give grace to other people. And that is what's going to build up the body and build up the house and not tear it down. <clears throat> and as as we're going to Jesus and asking him to fill us, I think it is so, so important to have his heart for his church and to have his heart for the bride. Um and in Romans one, when paul is is his introduction um to the Romans, he talks about himself for a couple of verses, and then he addresses them as the beloved of Christ, the saints. And so he equates the beloved of Christ with the saints. So anyone who is a saint, anyone who is set apart, anyone who has Jesus indwelling in them, is a beloved. And um, I remember thinking, um, Kate and Zach are one of my favorite examples of this because Zach is just so adores Kate and you can always see it on his face. You can see it when he talks about her and he's fiercely protective of the people he loves and he's fiercely protective of when other people speak about the people he loves. And, um, And so I remember um, in a sermon or something, when someone was talking about the church being Christ's beloved, I just, I had that picture of if I went up to Zach and just started lambasting Kate, how he would react. Or if I just spoke a little negatively of Kate, how would he react? Or vice versa, Kate is very, very protective of Zach's reputation. And if I say, you know, just the tiniest negative thing about Zach, or even if someone might Possibly remotely think poorly of Zach. Kate is on it. And she's like, No, 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 you don't understand. See, this happened, and then blah, blah, blah. And then I was like, But wait, the church and every single person in the church is that beloved. They're that Kate, and Christ is Zach. And so you have to realize that if I speak poorly of someone, I'm speaking poorly of Christ's beloved. And if someone, if you allow someone else to speak poorly of someone else to you, you're allowing them to speak poorly of Christ's beloved. And Christ's heart is so entwined with his church that when Paul was persecuting the church in Acts 9, when Jesus knocked Paul off of his horse and said, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting my church? Except he didn't say that. He said, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And so however we treat and however we speak to the body of Christ, we literally are treating and speaking that way about Jesus. And that is just, it's so heavy to me to think like, like that's how Jesus loves me. But that's how Jesus loves every single one of you. And all of us have... I've heard it put EGRs, people that are EGRs, extra grace required. And (laughs) you might see someone and be in a conversation and be like, Jesus, I just want to leave this conversation. Or Jesus, like I just need to do something else. Or maybe you're not like me at all and you don't struggle with anything that I do. And you you just love talking to every single person that you see. But then there's your family members. And, you know, before you've had your morning coffee and people are peppy and awake, aka my mom, um, <laughs> um, you know, even, even those people, even in those moments, even after long days at work, even after long days of packing your house, even after long days of cleaning the church or whatever going on, it still has to be this is Christ's beloved. Um, so, so now as we have like a background of speech and like, what is God's heart for our words? I want to go back to, um, to Abigail's talk, but first we're going to quickly read again what Nabal responded to David. So again, that's First Samuel 25, um, starting in verse 10. But Nabal answered David's servants and said, who is David? And who is the son of Jesse? So he knew who David was. It's not like he was saying, oh, I've never heard of this person before. What are you talking about? Like, it was this scornful derision. Who is David? Who does he think he is? And who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants today who are each breaking away from his master. <clears throat> so he's speaking poorly of David. He's saying his lineage is nothing. He's the son of, who's the son of Jesse? And he is betraying Saul. That's basically what he's saying. There are lots of people today who are breaking away from their master. And so Nabal has no concept of God's will. He has no, con- even though the Lord told Samuel to anoint David, he doesn't respect that. He thinks Saul should still be the king. Um, and he doesn't even respect David as a man. And back then, warriors, it was all about your name. It was all about your honor. So even though it might seem weird for David to react so strongly and say, I'm going to kill all of them, that was very, very, very normal. And you could not be respected if you let your name be slandered and you didn't take action. And so as someone who was about to be a king, it would have been very respected, And normal for him to go and kill all of Nabal's men. But then Nabal says, and this is interesting. So count all the times he says I or my in this little speech. It's like one sentence in my Bible. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have slaughtered for my shearers and give it to men whose origin I do not know. So he says I or my seven times. And his focus is completely on himself. And it's completely selfish. And yeah, he's a son of Belial. So then later on down, so the servant goes to Abigail, says, this is what's going on. Know what you need to do and do it now. And so she acts. She doesn't stop to think. She doesn't let her emotions take over. She's just like, okay, this is what needs to happen. And I'm going to go do it. She's about to face... 400 armed men who are hungry, who are angry, and have been insulted, and who are some of the best warriors in the entire kingdom. None of Saul's warriors ever killed a giant, but David's warriors did. David killed a giant, and four of his men killed giants. So, like, these are intense warriors, and she's about to go and face them, and so it, it it's kind of funny to me because it says that she's going down the hidden part of the mountain in verse 20. And then all of a sudden she meets them. So it kind of seems like she was probably trying to like sneak around and like be quiet and stealthy. And then all of a sudden see them. But instead it's just they're right there. <clears throat> so she quickly gets off her donkey. Um, in verse 23, when Abigail saw David, she hurried and dismounted from her donkey and fell on her face before David. And bowed herself to the ground. She fell at his feet. And I want, as as I read this, I want you to look at how many times she says I or my. But she says my Lord when she's talking to David, and that doesn't count. So don't count those my's. Um, because that's just a sign of reverence. It's not selfishness the way that Nabal uh, was using it. <clears throat> so she fell at his feet and said on me. So One, I guess. As she's being humble. On me alone, my lord, be the blame. And please let your maidservant speak to you and listen to the words of your maidservant. Please do not let my lord pay attention to this worthless man, Nabal. For as his name is, so is he. Nabal, or fool, is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your maidservant, did not see the young men of my lord whom you sent. Now therefore, my lord, as Yahweh lives... Yahweh being the covenant name of God. And you can tell it's Yahweh by all the capital letters. And I always think it's really important that when you do see that, that you kind of say in your name, oh, Yahweh. Because she's being very specific about what God she's talking about. She's not talking about the Philistines' God. She's not talking about the Amalekites' God. She's not talking about anyone else but the covenantal God of the Israelites, Yahweh. And so maybe on the other hand, you can start counting how many times she says Yahweh. <clears throat> now therefore, my Lord, as Yahweh lives and as your soul lives, since Yahweh has restrained you from shedding blood and from avenging yourself by your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek evil against my Lord be as Nabal. Now let this gift which your maidservant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who accompany my Lord. Please forgive the transgression of your maidservant. For Yahweh will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house. Because my Lord is fighting the battles of Yahweh. And evil will not be found in you all your days. Should anyone rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, then the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living with Yahweh your God. But the lives of your enemies he will sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when Yahweh does for my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you, and appoints you ruler over Israel, This will not cause grief or trouble or a troubled heart to my Lord, both by having shed blood without cause and by my Lord having avenged himself. When Yahweh deals well with my Lord, then remember your maidservant. So just as the perfect number, seven of selfishness in her husband, is the perfect number of the times that Abigail points David to Yahweh. I think that's really interesting. I don't think God made a mistake when he had you know, um, whoever took over for Samuel after Samuel died writing this book. Um, he didn't make a mistake in that they wrote those exact words. Whether her speech was longer or not, we don't know. This is all they recorded. And they were very specific with what they recorded. So the first thing that I want us to look at is just how humble that Abigail was. When she went to David, she was the wife of a man who lived like a king. And she had five maidservants. When she went to go be David's wife, it says that she had five maidservants with her. She didn't send her maidservants instead of her to go talk to David. She went herself. She rode on her own donkey. She got off of the donkey herself. She fell on her face before David herself. She didn't act like the wife of a rich man she was humble, and then she also takes the blame for her husband, saying, "My transgressions, would you forgive my transgressions? Would?" And and she says, "It's please don't do this because I was not there, I did not hear." So she's taking all the blame for her husband, and I, as I was thinking about it, I was like, "I mean, yeah, she's, you know, she's, she's worried about her life." More, she's probably worried about all the men in the family, all their servants, all their families. What are they going to do? But at the same time, you can't fake that amount of humility. <laughs> like, women's emotions tend to take over at some point. And so you can't fake that much humility. You can't fake that much pointing to Jesus or that much pointing to God. Um, And so... <clears throat> When we as women are going to someone like David and we see that they're about to make a mistake, I just started thinking, like, how many times do I go in that much humility? And how many times do I take on the responsibility (laughs) for something that I didn't do? Where I'm like, if there's going to be blame tossed around, then place it on me. Don't put it on this person. Don't put it on God. Put it on me so that I can help you do the right thing. And so that's what Abigail does as she's humble and takes the blame. And you see that it's very reminiscent of Daniel when he's fasting for the Israelites in Daniel 9. And of Nehemiah when he's praying for the Israelites in Nehemiah 1. Both of them take the blame for the Israelites' sin. They don't, both of them are very blameless men, but they don't say, Lord, please forgive the sins of Israel. They say, Lord, please forgive our sins. And so they include themselves in that. Um, the second thing, so she goes, she falls at his feet. <clears throat> She says, please accept this gift. Please forgive the transgression of your maidservant. Um, For the Lord will certainly make, for Yahweh will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house. Because my Lord, David, is fighting the battles of Yahweh. And evil will not be found in you in your days. So the next thing that she does is she reminds David that his life and his purpose is not about him. It's about the Lord. He doesn't fight his own battles. He fights Yahweh's battles. And the battle that he was about to fight with his 400 men would have been all about David. And if we are going to be women that speak life, especially, and as I was preparing this, like, yes, we should be speaking life into each other. But... I think it's a, a lot easier to encourage other women to speak life into other women, but it can be harder to speak life into the men around us because you don't necessarily get into as many deep talks with them. They don't share their emotions as much, but this is Abigail talking to David and this is Abigail speaking life and giving grace to a man. And so I want us to kind of think about that. I really felt like that was the Lord's heart for this, like as we as we learn from Abigail that if there are men in your life, no matter how short the conversation is, how long the conversation is, how well you know them, or how well you don't know them, that you are always being humble and always pointing them to Jesus, that their life is not about themselves. It's about Jesus. And when we're warning someone to not go into sin, it's still not about them. And she doesn't even talk about the consequences for David until the very end of her speech. When we warn people against sin, it's still not about them. It's about that they need to be fighting the Lord's battles. And they cannot be caught up in fighting their own battles. They cannot be caught up in whatever the devil wants to get them distracted with. They have to be focused on the Lord. So the third thing, and I know this is kind of all over the place. Um, <clears throat> she then goes on. She reminds him that he's fighting the Lord's battle. And then she says in verse 29, should anyone rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, then the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God. But the lives of your enemies, he will sling out from the hollow of a sling. And I I think she's being a little rhetorical here. Because Nabal isn't after his life. But Saul is. So should anyone rise up to pursue you? Yes, Saul is definitely pursuing him. And to seek your life. Saul is definitely seeking his life. So she, I think she's definitely alluding to Saul here. Should anyone rise up to pursue you or to take your life or to seek your life, then the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living with Yahweh your God. And so... I don't think it's an accident, again, that this is right between David sparing Saul's life in chapter 24 and David sparing Saul's life in chapter 26. She's reminding him of how he had spared Saul's life before and how God had spared David's life. And it reminded me of, this is at the bottom of the back of the page, in 2 Timothy 3, 10 and 11, my dad just preached on 2 Timothy. And how Timothy was so weak and he was starting to become ashamed of Paul, the gospel. So, 2 Timothy is this charge to Timothy to be courageous, to not be ashamed of the gospel. And as he's talking and he's talking about the end times and how there's going to be evil men rising up, but then he says, Paul says to Timothy, Now you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, and sufferings, such as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord rescued me. And so in the middle of him encouraging Timothy, he's very specific to talk about all the things that he went through, but how the Lord rescued him from them all. And he doesn't have to go into specific stories here. Because, you know, if I'm talking to Marla, we've known each other for so long. If I just say, you know, this general thing, this general thing, and this general thing, and the Lord has rescued me from them all, she immediately knows what I'm talking about. And so he's bringing to Timothy's mind all the ways that the Lord has rescued him. And that's what Abigail is doing. And so it's so important, again, to remind people, especially men, of God's protection and to remind them of how God has come through because he will come through again. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In him is no shadow of turning. He is not a man that he should lie So if he did one thing yesterday, he's going to do the same thing today. And he will protect you. And so you see that, again, I think that Abigail's words went really deep into David's spirit. And then when he was faced with the same temptation again in chapter 26, he again doesn't take Saul's life. Because he remembers, God is my protector. He will be the one who protects me. He will be the one who guards me and who guides me. And so, <clears throat> I don't, like, if you're, if someone is discouraged, the words to say are not, you're enough. It's not, you know, you have everything that you need in and of yourself. You just need to love yourself. The way <laughs> to encourage them is God is enough. And God will protect you. And Jesus has come through in your life in this situation. And Jesus has come through in my life in this situation. And he's not about to stop. So then continuing on in her speech. Um, turn the page. <clears throat> and then she says in verse 30. And when Yahweh does for my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you. And appoints you ruler over Israel. And so, right there, she's referring David back to Samuel's prophecy over him when he was anointing David to be king. And so, again, she's pointing him back to the Lord. She's pointing him back to the promise so that his eyes are off himself and his eyes are off his situation and his eyes are on the Lord. I think it's really interesting that she says, and when, not and if the Lord does this, it's and when the Lord does this, he made a promise, it will come through and when. So she's speaking with certainty. And as I was thinking about the promises of the Lord, God just reminded me of some really specific things. Um. Especially that everyone in the Old Testament, again, Jesus is the focal point of everything. He's the focal point of the word. He's the focal point of history. And so everything in the Old Testament is looking towards the cross. And then everything after the cross is looking back at the cross. So we don't necessarily look forward to the promises of God. There are some promises that are just in the future. Our glorification in heaven, our renewed bodies But instead, we look at promises as in the past. They were fulfilled in Jesus. They were fulfilled in the cross. And so we don't have to be, like, we should remind people of God's promises like Abigail, but we don't need to say when in the future. We can say when in the past. And one of the coolest examples that I love, Madeline always quotes Psalm 16 with me. And one of our favorite verses is the last verse in the chapter, which is verse 11. And when David is writing it, he says, you will make known to me the path of life. And so it's a future. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now, what's interesting, though, is that Peter's first sermon at Pentecost, he preaches and he quotes that psalm and he changes a word. And instead of saying he will make known to me the path of life, he says he has made known to us the path of life. So Peter says we're looking back at the cross. Jesus has already made a way. Jesus has already shown us the path of life. And those pr- and then, I mean, i love ephesians and ephesians talks all about of who we are in christ and how we're seated with christ in heavenly places and so where david is looking forward to being in the presence of the lord he's looking forward to being at the right hand of god we get to look back because if we are in christ that is our current state and every single believer that is their current state it's not that You know, oh, I need to struggle really hard to be in the presence of God. No, the living God of this universe is living inside of me. I just need to start (laughs) focusing on him. I just need to start abiding in him. His presence is here. He's not going to withdraw his spirit from me because then I wouldn't be saved anymore. And I don't need to struggle and strive to be at the right hand of God to have pleasures forever. I'm already seated with Christ in heavenly places at the right hand of God. And so it's, so when we're reminding people of promises, we need to remind them of who they are in Christ now. It's, and yeah, you know, there's future promises. When people are going through hard times, you have to, you know, sorrow lasts for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Those are future promises, but there are so many more promises for the now. When, when God said to Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, my grace is sufficient for you, it wasn't my grace can be sufficient for you. It wasn't my grace will be sufficient for you. It's my grace is sufficient. So every single moment, in every single situation, his grace already is sufficient. And instead of, you know, and I can't tell you like that, especially with my physical problems, And the pain that I've been in for so many years, I held on to that verse for so long. And I was like, Jesus, like, I don't know if I can get through today. I'm in so much pain. Like, but Jesus, I'm going to hold on to this promise. Would you make it true? Your grace is sufficient. And then all of a sudden, he showed me one day, no, 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 no. I don't need to be asking God to do anything that he's already done. I just need to stand in faith and thank him. For the promise that he's given me of my grace is sufficient. So my prayer turned from Jesus, please make your grace sufficient in this situation to thank you, Jesus, that your grace is sufficient already. And I have access to that grace through Christ. And <clears throat> um, James one nineteen through 26. It's a long passage, so we're not going to actually read all of it. <coughs> but... um. James is talking about their speech and then he talks about how they need to be doers of the word and not hearers of the word. And this was something really cool that, um, came up in one of our book studies. Um, and we were talking about the normal Christian life and Kate said something and I literally have been thinking about it for like weeks now. But when we come to the word, like a mirror, most of us Look at this. And yes, the word does reveal our sin. It does. The law reveals our sin. But the funny thing is that in this passage, it doesn't talk about the law that reveals our sin. It talks about the law of liberty. I removed the verse markers. so. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, Not having become a forgetful hearer, but but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. So he's talking about the law of grace. And what does grace say? Grace says that the person who used to be a pigsty keeper now has the signet ring of his father and is wearing his robe of righteousness. The law of liberty says that the woman who was a prostitute in her town and was paid money to pretend to be people's wives, that she is now a princess. And so when when we look into the word of God, we have to allow it to tell us who we are now, not who God can make us into one day, and yes, he can, and he wants to continue to sanctify us, but I don't think that's necessarily what he's talking about here. What he's talking about is you need to look at the law of grace. You need to look at Jesus and see what does Jesus tell me who I am, and what does Jesus tell me who other people are. Don't go by your emotions. Don't go by your feelings. Don't go by what you see in the natural, because sometimes it can be really discouraging if you see a husband or a father or a brother Or just a brother in Christ who isn't passionate for the Lord, who isn't doing what you think he should be doing in his calling. But when we speak to them and we try to speak words of life, we have to remind them who they are in Christ, if they are in Christ. And if we walk away from the mirror and I all of a sudden am like, I'm still a prostitute. I'm still a pigsty keeper. Then I will still act like one. But if I walk away from the law of liberty, and I remember that I am not a prostitute anymore, I am Yahweh's daughter, I am not a pigsty keeper anymore, I have been covered with the robe of righteousness of Jesus Christ, then I will walk like one, then I will live like one, and then I will be able to speak like one. And the last verse, if anyone thinks himself to be religious... And yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart. This man's religious is worthless. And so it's, but you have to remember, it's as Jesus. Jesus is our religion. Jesus is the one who changes our speech. And so as we're filled more with Jesus, then we are able to speak his words and to, to speak his grace and his life to people. And again, I couldn't talk about like who we are in Christ without having us read First Peter 2, 9 through 10. This is who you are. This is who your brothers are. This is who your husbands are. This is who your fathers are. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And if you read Ephesians, he talks all about the mystery of God. And the mystery of God is that all of us Gentiles would be able to come into his body, and we would be united. And once we were not a people, we were all separated. We were all worshiping our own idols. But now we are a people of God. We are a people of his own possession. And so as you remind people of God's promise, what is in the front of our mind has to be who they are in Christ. And reminding them of that. So sorry. Okay. Back to Abigail's speech. Um, The last part that I want to look at is verse 31. So she's, well, okay, verse 30. And when Yahweh has done for my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and appoints you ruler over Israel, this will not cause you grief or a troubled heart to my Lord, both by having shed blood without cause And by my Lord, having avenged himself. When Yahweh deals well with my Lord, then remember your maidservant. And so she talks about herself at the very end. But it's, she's focusing on Jesus. She's focusing on, well, Yahweh, but Jesus is God. So I just say Jesus. Focus on the Lord. Focus on the Lord. Focus on the Lord. Focus on his promises. Focus on who you are in him. And then at the very end, she encourages him to have a clear conscience and to not avenge himself. And so, again, these words didn't just rescue him from Nabal. It didn't just rescue him from taking an innocent man's blood and a lot of other innocent man, men's men's blood. Um, I think her words also helped him spare Saul in just a couple months later, a couple weeks later, however... <clears throat> much later it was but um i and s- I don't, so it is important to remind people that you reap what you sow and that if you sow to please your flesh from your flesh you will reap discre- destruction that is important But she brings it in at the very end. And so I think it's just as God is all about Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. And so the Father is all about Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And when we're all focused on Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Then that is what brings glory to the Father. And so if we do want to be women that speak life and that speak grace and that always have grace to give people all we have to offer is Jesus all we have to offer is Jesus is enough Jesus is sufficient Jesus has taken the penalty Jesus has forgiven your sins Jesus has paid for your sins Jesus has not just given you a new heart and made you a new creation but he can cleanse your conscience Hebrews 9 one of my favorite verses he literally can cleanse your conscience That's what his blood does. And so I wanted to, I'm going to read this and then, um, I'm going to pray over us. Um, and then really quick so that you guys have at least 15 or 20 minutes to pray together. And so just grab a couple people, um, next to you and you can share other prayer requests, but be brief and try to focus on speech and how the Lord wants to grow you in that, but be very concise in how you share your prayer requests so that we can spend time in prayer. So let's not take the whole 15 minutes sharing everything because you want the Holy Spirit to pray through other people anyway. You don't have to give them every detail. Um, sorry, did you have a question? Yeah. So if there's someone you really, really want to encourage after I finish praying, go and grab them. Um, and so I'm going to read this list. <clears throat> but before I do that, one of the things that um, the Lord reminds me over and over, I read in a blog a couple months ago, and, you know, my heart will be so burdened for the men in my life. And, like, I remember being a teenager and just being burdened for the men in our church, burdened for the men in my life. And like, God, like, I just want to see them walk in their calling. I just want to see them passionate for you. And it can be so discouraging, Jesus, and then like still praying. And, um, but one thing that he's been reminding me of is Jesus desires that more than me. And it's so important to know the Lord's heart. And that Jesus desires the men in our church, the men in your family, the men in this city to be passionate for him more than we do. And so as we talk to them, as we pray for them, remember that you are praying something that is on the Lord's heart. And and you have his favor as you're praying for that. Um, <clears throat> But this is just a list of, um that we shared when we were going through the gospel a couple months ago in one of the missions training sessions. And I know I've read it before. I just wanted to read it again to remind us of... Not who we were, but who we are now in Christ. Um, and again, this is the list that I sent out a couple weeks after that that has all the verses with it. So if you don't have it, I can send it to you, but it's probably in most of your email boxes, uh, much lower. So we are chosen. We are chosen. When the world doesn't choose us, Jesus chooses us. We are redeemed. We are forgiven. We are justified. We are a new creation. We are precious and loved. We are clothed in garments of salvation. We are arrayed in garments of righteousness or in robes of righteousness. We are oaks of righteousness. A crown of splendor in the Lord's hand. We are rejoiced over. We are sung over. We are inseparable from the love of God. We are like a tree planted by streams of water. We are the body of Christ. The fullness of Christ to the world. We are living stones. We are a dwelling for God. We are created to do good works. We are fellow citizens. We are members of God's household. We are the righteousness of God in Christ. We are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. We are ambassadors of Christ. We are Jesus's friends. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit. We are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. We are light in the Lord. We are free from sin. We are dead to sin. We are slaves to righteousness. We are his. We are adopted. We are sons or daughters. We are brothers and sisters with Christ. We are God's children we are heirs of God. We are co-heirs with Christ. We are overcomers. We are more than conquerors. We are victorious. We are alive. And I thank you, Jesus, so much. I thank you, Jesus, that we are only these things because of you. And we are only these things because of your blood. And I thank you that you have called every single one of these women to be women who only speak your words. That no unwholesome talk will come out from us. That every word that we speak would be filled with grace, seasoned with salt, so that we will know how to respond to everyone. Jesus, you are the wise one. You are the one that knows what words need to be spoken in every situation to every person. And I pray that you would give us wisdom right now. That you would give us wisdom to know when to speak and when to hold our tongue. You would give us wisdom to know how to encourage people. How to spur them on towards loving good deeds. That we would know how to pour out Jesus on them. How to pour out life on them. And Jesus, I pray that you would give us your heart. That you would give us your heart for us. That we would be able to see it and know it and walk in it. And that we would know your heart for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And Jesus, I pray that we would know your heart for your beloved. And that we would treat every person, even if they're in our family, even if they're at our workplace, we would treat them with love and with grace. Jesus, I ask that right now you would reveal to us ways that you want to grow us and ways that you want to prune us so that there can be less of us and more of Jesus. And I ask, Lord, that we would not have worldly sorrow, but that you would give us godly sorrow that leads to life. Jesus, would you be life in us? And would you be life through us? And Jesus, I, just, I ask that every single woman in here would speak words of life and would speak words of strength and of power from Jesus, the power that raised Jesus from the dead, that that power would reside in us and would speak through us and that other people would be able to receive. Jesus, I ask that you would be so glorified through our lives because our lives are all about Jesus. Jesus we love you so much and i just i ask that you would help us to pray for each other with faith to pray for each other with boldness to pray for each other with humility and that you would guide our prayers and we would pray what is on your heart in the name of Jesus amen